Financial with Christopher Calandra, Certified Financial Planner, is an innovative, comprehensive, informative, and cutting-edge podcast that discusses financial topics ranging from personal finance, economics, politics, and personal growth. Simply Financial will cover intriguing and thought-provoking questions so that the listener can simply increase their financial IQ. Thanks for joining me today. This is Christopher Calandra, the Simply Financial Podcast. This is episode number five of season four. So on today's episode, it's the second part of a two-part series. In the first part, I interviewed Debbie Cody, and now I am going to speak with her husband, Gil, and she paid him a very high compliment at the end of our interview, saying that you, Gil, were the savvier of the two when it comes to money, so I don't want to put any pressure on you. She did great in our discussion. Are you, in fact, the savvier of the two when it comes to money? Uh, I would say yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Uh, thanks for taking a little bit of time out to um, discuss personal finance with me. You and I have had um, several really good conversations. I appreciate your approach to dealing with money and how, and we're going to talk about this, how you like to help others increase their financial IQ helping them to make smart financial decisions. And I wanted to, to begin talking a little bit about when you were growing up, Gil, your house, your household, your family. Did you grow up in a, a wealthy family? Was it poor? Was it middle class? We always felt as if we were middle class because, uh, one, we owned the home we lived in. Two, we always had two cars, you know, um, Three, the, uh, we, we got an opportunity. We went on vacations every summer. We went to the beach. Uh, I went to camp uh, with guys in the neighborhood. We had, um, you know, baseball teams and football teams. So it was a, a middle-class African-American home that I grew up in. Very good. And uh, was it a, a two-parent home? Two-parent home. Um, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was a blue-collar worker, worked at uh, General Motors in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. So he was a blue-collar factory worker for GM for most of his career? Yes. All right. Very good. And what did you, uh, what did you learn about money growing up? What are some of your early memories about money and what you learned? Well, my dad... Uh, had an eighth grade education and he had served in the Navy and he just always exposed me to personal finance by letting me get involved in the things that he did. For instance, he got paid every week. So on Fridays, because he worked third shift, he'd come in, he'd lay his check, his check on the table and he would make the market lists and the bills that needed to be paid any checks that need to be written, I think I was probably 10, 11 years old. My dad would tell me, okay, write this check out to this person. So wow. I, I was learning how to do that at a very young age. And then he would take me to the market with him. <laughs> and, and he would show me how, uh, you know, what type of items he would buy. And I never thought it was odd that my dad went to the market rather than my mother, you know, like the other mothers did in the neighborhood. But my dad took took charge of the, uh, the finances. And uh, one of the things he was most proud of was the fact that he paid for his house in like 10 years. He paid that house off in 10 years. 
Okay, so he bought a house, which in and of itself is an accomplishment. And then he and your mother must have been focused on paying off that mortgage, which even to this day, Gil, seems to me is the uh, part of the American dream is to own a home and then to own it outright and be mortgage-free. And doing that in 10 years is a great accomplishment. Absolutely. So when did you find out the home was paid off? Well, let me ask it this way first. Um, how old were you when the house was paid off, you think? You see, for, I was probably 14, about 16 years old. 15, okay. 16 years old, yeah. And at 16, were you aware that they were on a mission to pay off the mortgage? Was that something that was was spoken about or did he um, explain to you that this was something that they were striving to do? Yes, my dad, again, he always, I was the oldest of four and he always made sure that I was involved in the processes and he explained the goals. Like he always uh, had savings bonds coming out of his pay. That's how he, that's how he saved his money, you know. Sure. And, then, and he told me, he says, well, I got a car for your mother. I always let your, your, your wife drive the best car, and I've got this other clunker here that I drive to work. <laughs> he says, but, but this is the mission that we're on. We want to try to pay this house off. In fact, we've got another six months to go, and it'll all be paid off, and we'll all go out and celebrate. He sounds like a very wise man. Yeah, he was. He was a great guy. And probably didn't make an obscene amount of money being a blue-collar worker, but it sounds like he made a number of smart decisions along the way to take good care of his family. Is that a good way to describe it? That's a very good way to describe it, exactly. All right. Awesome. So, so it sounds like at a young age, your dad did a very good job for you, and I would assume your siblings too, of uh, teaching about money. Uh, it seems like it seems like in, in many um, households and communities in this country that that kind of wisdom, that kind of teaching is uh, in short supply, too short supply. There's not enough of that. Um, would you agree with that assessment? I do agree with that. And uh, one of the things I had wanted to ask you about, and, and you had said at the outset, um, in thinking about the African-American community, which I am not a part of, you know, you've been with me and we've talked about some of this stuff when we've been together, is it, it seems to me based on my 27 years of experience as a financial planner that the African American community is somewhat underserved in terms of the, um, underserved in the area of personal finance, whether it's education, resources, or what have you. And one of the things that impresses me so much about you, and, and Debbie too, is your willingness and interest to make sure that family and loved ones, people you come in contact with, are in a position to get educated so that they could be financially successful and kind of follow some of the principles. It sounds like you learned at a very young age and have carried with you through your life. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of this to you, uh, the importance of helping people, not just in the African-American community, but even beyond that, and how you like to help people? 
Um, well, having told you about my dad, um, there were many comparisons in our, in our neighborhood. Um, that middle class description that I gave you, uh, there were many people that lived in my neighborhood. Uh, they felt as if they met the, the middle class um, definition as well. Uh, but their definition was how shiny and new the cars, <laughs> the, the automobiles were. Right. Uh, the bling that they wore on their wrists and around their necks, many of those folks. Uh, and even though, um, I mean, we lived in, it's called a townhouse now, but it was a row, it was called row houses back when I was growing up. All right. I, I think that uh, my dad kind of set, set us all on a path. Uh, for instance, he paid that house off in 10 years. Uh, I owned my first house when I was 24 years old, you know. Uh, my brother owned his first house when he was 26 years old. My sister, I think she was 28 or whenever she finished law school. And I think that's very, very important. And we've tried to tell our children the same thing by, one, giving them an allowance, uh, two, making sure that they always work um, when they, when they uh, were teenagers and they were eligible to work, and to show them how to do something as simple as put your change in a jar. My kids still do that. You know? <laughs> I, I, I still do that at my house, by the way. I mean, it's very, it's very, very important. It's a small thing, but um, you, you, you go down the road a few months or a year or whatever, and you got $1,000 sitting in the jar, you know. And um, so we try to teach our kids that, you know, one, you need to be self-sufficient, uh, I love you, I raise you, but I don't want you to live in my house as an adult. I want you to get your own house. I want you to save some money. I want you to make sure that you're self-sufficient and that you understand that things like having your own automobile and, and, uh, and having a, a, good, a good job and, and education. Now, we always stress college is not for everybody, but you need to have some sort of expertise, something that allows you to accumulate wealth. Now that may sound a little bit too sophisticated for some, some parents to tell their kids, but that's the way that we raise our children. Very good. Do you have any advice for other families that might be struggling with finances and building wealth? I think that if, there's, if, if people are struggling, it's because one, they don't even know how much money they make. You know, two, they don't have an appreciation for the bills that they have made. Three, they don't know the difference between the things that they want and the things that they actually need. <laughs> and when they bring those things into perspective and bring their children and let them understand this is why we are where we are right now. This is why we can't purchase this right now. Like I've never bought my kids a pair of $180 tennis shoes. Never. <laughs> I never did that. And I explained to them, it's not that I couldn't afford them, but there's other monetary benefits that you get from us other than some shoes that you can walk around in and show people that you, that you have those shoes. So my advice to other, other families is to uh, address those things that I just mentioned, understand exactly where you are, what your earning capability is, what your responsibilities are, and make sure that your children understand what their status is. They ought to know whether they're poor or wealthy or whether they're middle class and explain that to them and get them involved in the process and have a plan. Very good. So 
I'm kind of going off my, my script a little bit because I'm fascinated about your dad. So if he had an eighth grade education and he served in the Navy, I think you said, um, was he drafted or was he a career guy in the Navy? Uh, he was drafted and, you know, when you, the Army was the only service that drafted, but you had the option to join one of the other services when, you, when your draft number was called. Yes. You just enlisted. So that was his situation. He was drafted and he chose to go in the Navy. So where did he learn about money? You know, I'll tell you, uh, my grandfather was a farmer and uh, so he basically ran a business. Uh, he was a very, very light-skinned man living in North Carolina. So he was allowed to participate in the farming enterprise at a level that was different from the darker-skinned African-Americans in the community. I see. He relayed that to us. So he was a, he was a, a, a pretty savvy businessman. So he ran that farm, and he imparted the business aspect of it to, to all nine of his children. And I believe that's where my dad got that from. So this is a multi-generational awareness of money and uh, not that you are, you know, multi-billionaires or anything like that, but I'm getting the sense that this is a multi-generational family tradition about being wise with money and purposeful with money. That's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. And I will tell you that all nine of my dad's siblings own their homes. <laughs> you know? Right. So um, it's just a family thing. You're, you're a Cody, then uh, you know, when are you going to buy a house? You know, how long have you, been, have you had that house? That sort of thing is something that, that permeates my entire family, you know, that you should get a job, have a career, take care of your kids, save some money, and buy a house. I mean, that's just that's standard. It is multi-generational. And you mentioned that um, your grandfather, your paternal grandfather, was a farmer in North Carolina. You grew up, though, in the Baltimore area. Is that right? Right in Baltimore City, absolutely. All right. So given what you learned from your grandfather and your father, which I'm, again, completely fascinated by, so what what rules do you have on handling money? What are some of your rules and guidelines that um, you've used to a positive effect in your own life? One of the basic tenets is pay yourself first. You know, I mean, even if you have, you have bills, you have to say, well, the money that I earn, a certain amount of it goes in the bank for me first. Then I take care of everything else, you know, and you have to have some sort of forecast to say, you know, it's, it's just a, it's like a, a trial balance sheet. You know, what are your liabilities? Or what are your assets? <laughs> I mean, I kind of keep it just that simple. Pay yeah. myself and then sit down and say, okay, this is what I know our liabilities are. And, and, and this is what our assets are. And then the things that we like to enjoy, to go out and eat, to, to go travel, et cetera, then those things we are able to afford those things by using that, 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 uh, that mindset. So you learned good money habits at a young age and you're retired now. And I want to talk some about that in a little bit, but have there been any notable money mistakes that you've made along the way, or have you been very consistent in making good decisions? 
Well, I've been very consistent, but I, I, I'm not, not to blame my ex. But um, one, of, one of the things that uh, was a contributing factor to our marriage not making it was money. <laughs> you know, she was in a totally different place as far as spending money. And that caused a lot of friction in, uh, you know, in, in, our, in our home. And uh, unfortunately, I'm going to say that was a, that was a mistake. Um, we certainly got married. We were young. We were in love and all that. But uh, by me not putting my foot down uh, harder and uh, discussing money with her uh, in, in, a, in a more effective way, I mean, that, I think that's a mistake that I made. Uh, okay. Another critical mistake that I made was, was uh, uh, time, buying a timeshare. Oh, my gosh. That is, <laughs> I bought a timeshare, and you know the story on timeshare. That is, that, we lost money. Sure. We, we lost money. So to me, that, that is probably the biggest mistake that I ever made. So um, uh, Debbie and I touched upon this topic a bit in a um, somewhat separate way. But, you know, in, in speaking about your first marriage is the number one reason couples get divorced is related to money fights and money disagreements. And so, you know, what you shared not that we need to know all the gory details, is, is a fairly common storyline with fa failed marriages. It's the number one reason. And the thing about it is sometimes it could be a lack of money, and that's why there's pressure and stresses and fights. But it goes beyond that. Even households where there's, uh, quote-unquote, enough money and there's some wealth and income, if there's tremendous disagreement on the fundamental priorities with money, spending versus saving, um, related to debt, and maximizing income versus work-life balance. If there's tremendous disagreements in, in a marriage on this front, it's incredibly difficult to have a successful marriage. And so uh, would you say that with you and Debbie, more often than not, you're on the same page in terms of priorities with money? Yes, we are on the same page because, well, that was one of the things we discussed when we first met. We said, well, why are we in the situation that we were in? Both of us were in uh, were estranged from our spouses when we met, and um, we were in, again incredible amount of, had an incredible amount of debt. So as we said, okay, look, you know, if we're going to be together, one of the things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to be on the same sheet of music about, about money. That's just the way it is. So we have some basic rules, like nobody spends over $100 without conferring with the other person, plain and simple. You know? okay. um, we, we, we do things like Debbie has some money that goes into a separate account for her if she wants to buy me something and, and uh, doesn't want me to know that is coming because I'm monitoring the, the uh, money accounts, you know, but that's just one of the things that we agreed upon, you know, when it comes down to loaning money to people, et cetera, uh, that's, that's a decision that we make together. When we buy big ticket items, automobiles, houses or whatever, we are always on the same sheet of music. We have an agreement and we know that we have to make certain concessions because you don't get everything that you want in, in a marriage. You have to make sure that you have a good working relationship 
And we do have that about our money situation and our lives. And would you say, uh, you know, um, Joelle, who you've met, uh, I think a couple of times, right? Is um, a, a lot of it? It seems to me, and I'm, I've, you know, I'm, I'm only in one relationship, so um, my personal experience is just my one marriage. But I've, I've met and spoken with hundreds of couples over the course of my 27-year career. It seems like communication, consistent communication on the money topic, is is very important. Where sometimes, if there's disagreement couples might just kind of sweep it under the rug and not really address it and the problem might worsen over time hard feelings might get even harder over time but just open communication that purposefulness of going through the budget looking at an investment portfolio together talking about big purchases and how they're going to be paid for whether it's going to be cash or debt and how much debt and how much should be spent and the timing of those things. Just that communication goes a long way to keeping a couple on the same sheet of music, to use your term. It, would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. So do you still have, I'm just curious, do you still have the timeshare? Oh, no. No, uh, we just cut our losses because I, I realized, I said, you know, you don't know about the, the maintenance fees. That's the catch-all. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I said, well, I, I told Debbie, I said, you know what? These maintenance fees are going to continue to go up. You know, we, we pay, basically own the times here, but the maintenance fees are going to continue. If you think about it. So the next 20 years, you know, you, you're going to have repurchased that time here two or three times. <laughs> but you'll never get away from the maintenance fees. That's that's the that's the part that you can't control. You you, <laughs> you can pay the twelve thousand dollars off, whether you so, finance or pay all right outright. But you'll never get away from the maintenance fees. Yes. So, and I didn't think we would go here in this conversation. But full disclosure, um, I'm a financial planner. I consider myself pretty savvy with money, and I've been successful in earning money over my career, Gil, and. Um, you know, my wife and I have built a very nice life for ourselves, but I would have bought one or more timeshares along the way if it wasn't for Joelle saying <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm grateful that she said no. And we joke about it because vividly, I remember we did one of those go, uh, and this was when we were younger and money was not as plentiful as, as it is now for us. And we went to New York City on one of those weekends where it's, you know, a discounted price and it's a timeshare, but you have to agree to a 60 or 90 minute presentation, that kind of thing. Very common, right? right. And we went there. We're not going to buy. We're not going to buy. We're just going to go there. We'll take advantage of things. Like 10 minutes into the presentation, I'm like, I think we should do this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad we didn't. So um, switching gears a bit. Uh, you had a career in the U.S. military and the Army, is that right? That's correct. Uh, thank you for your service. How did you end up in the military? Well, I was a college student, University of Maryland, and I really wasn't doing well. <laughs> Not because I didn't have the, the intellect, but I was just having way too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I just decided uh, 
Uh, my first wife was was in college with me. I decided I said, well, you know, I'm not getting anything done here, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave, and uh, I I left and I moved to Washington D.C. and um, the we ended up uh, uh, she was pregnant and uh, I, I I wasn't gonna go back home and I wasn't gonna ask my parents for any help, so I said, well, what what can I do? So I went and down to the recruiter join the military. I said, well, I can get one, I can get uh, uh, very cheap medical care for my, for me and my family being in the military. And two, I can take advantage of the GI Bill. So I'll do four years and I'll get out. Well, four years turned into 26 years and I'm glad that it did, but that's how, that's how it started. So Gil, before joining the army, did you seek the counsel of anyone now you were married at the time and uh you had at least one child at the time right so i mean you were you were a grown man right so uh was this something that you sought the counsel of your your dad or anyone else or this is just something that you made up your mind to do independently and went out and did it i just i i, I needed i know i needed to have a solution to this situation i was in i just went and did it okay and so you were going to go in for four years, get right. quality medical care, be eligible for the GI Bill so that you would be able to go back to school. So how does four years end up in tw uh, adding up to 26 years? Help me with how that happened. Well, I, my first duty station was Fort Belvoir, Virginia, which was great because my, my ex-wife was from D.C. and I was from Baltimore. Sure. So that's a close to family. But then they had something, uh, the reenlistment bonuses uh, were, were pretty, pretty uh, uh, attractive during that time. And so I was uh, two years into my enlistment, and I had an opportunity to, uh, uh, to reenlist. They, they let you have an early out, if you will, so that you can reenlist. And I said, well, I think I got something like, I don't know, ten thousand, eleven thousand dollars, or something like that. If I took a burst of six, if I took six more years, so I did. I reenlisted for six more years and went to Korea. And by the time I got to the end of that enlistment, I was I was getting close to ten. I was like, I may as well just go ahead and do the whole twenty. And that's how it ended up being twenty six years. Very good. So you had career military eligible for the pension. Uh, you have and I want to talk some more about retirement in a moment, but you know, you have a nice life in retirement and in thinking about younger generations, somebody that is thinking about joining the military or a career in the military, can somebody join the military today and be financially successful over uh, the course of their lives? You think that's still attainable? It is attainable. Uh, it's attainable because one, the, uh, the salaries, the pay rates have have been increased exponentially since I joined the military in 1972. Uh, I was a private. I think I was probably making $4,500 a year as a private. That same private right now makes around uh, about eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars $19,000 a year, you know. So the pay rates have increased. Also, they have... Uh, an investment vehicle. Uh, it's called TSP. 
And uh, it, it is the military's, the government's 401k plan. They didn't have anything like that when I was in. And so, yeah, you, you can be successful. But again, again you have to uh, know something about personal finance and, and take advantage of the opportunities when you're overseas living in government housing and don't have the, all the expenses of housing that you normally do when you're back here in the States. Yes, the answer to that question is yes, you can, whether you're just just one of the uh, the uh, family members is is in the military or both, like like uh, my wife and I, and I with us us having two military uh, uh, salaries, uh, we benefited while we were in the military, and certainly we're benefiting now that we've retired. Very good. I listen a lot to um, Dave Ramsey. I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Ramsey, but he is a, a get out of debt money guru that's his major thrust is get out of debt he has an incredibly popular book the total money makeover that sold a gazillion copies and his podcast is one of the top i think three most listened to downloads in the country unfortunately way more popular than my show but that's a different conversation but one of the things he points out on his show regularly is that if you go outside the gates of a uh, u.s military base there's a crazy amount of places for you to spend your money unwisely. Yes, absolutely. Is that, you, I imagine, had different duty stations. That's a pretty accurate depiction? Yeah, it is. That, that's just the way it is. It's when you're in a military installation, outside the gate, there are more pawn shops, um, places for uh, getting alterations to your uniform, having name tags made. Uh, a huge number of barbershops, um, and I'm not saying that those businesses prey on the military, but, but they know that there's a large military population there, and that they, they also realize that um, a lot of those uh, young soldiers out there, they're kind of real loose with their money, and right. they just need to suspend it. Now, for instance, I, was a, I retired as a command sergeant major, Well, one of the things that, that I would do, we had a sponsorship program, when I knew a soldier was coming into my unit, I assigned a sponsor to him, and when his sponsor was helping him go find a place, there was a certain publications uh, that came out of uh, the G6 headquarters, if you will, that would identify places that were bad landlords, bad neighborhoods with high crime, you know, things like that, loan sharks, that sort of thing. So I would make sure that we went through all of that and we had that packaged in our unit. And when that soldier in process, we made sure that he was aware of all those things that were outside the gate that were there to take his money away from him. And, and, and he doesn't have the, won't have the opportunity to use it for the purpose for which he's worked for, to take care of his family and to live comfortably. What a great resource. You, um, you wouldn't describe yourself as a, a free spender, would you? No, not really. What um what is something or a couple of things that you do uh, splurge on? <laughs> well, my wife and I like to uh, cruise, and uh, typically we do splurge because we, we 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 cruise and we get the VIP yeah. thing, you know. Um, so we're really trying to cut back a little bit on that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you got a butler. You know, 24-hour service, your own restaurant, and and easy boarding, and you're being escorted off the boat and all that. 
it's kind of hard to walk away from that. So that's probably my, our, our biggest vice as far as uh, splurging money. Very good. Good. So I took a little tangents, but I, I, I mostly kind of covered what I had wanted to cover with you, Gil. And it was the same with Debbie. I was super excited to have this discussion. And uh, I respect the service that you guys provided by being in the military and also your willingness to help others increase their financial IQ and win with money. Uh, is there anything that we uh, didn't cover that you were hoping that I asked about or anything like that? Uh, no, not, not, not really. Well, one thing, people that are in personal finance, like yourselves, uh, I think that my experience has been I mentioned to people that I have a, um, a person like yourself helping us out with our investments, et cetera. And people said, well, I'm not paying anybody to, to, to help me with my money. I said, well, I'm going to tell you, you might be pretty good at investing. And I thought I was pretty good at investing. But there's a certain point in time where you need to figure out what it costs for somebody professionally to help you out. And it's not 10, 12 percent like some people think. If you're within the one or one and a half percent uh, zone, then you're going to get somebody that one is better at it than you are. And, and if you made 13 percent last year, you probably could have made 17 percent because they're better at it than you are. <laughs> That's my attitude. So, yeah, I was kind of hoping we would discuss that, that 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 uh, people in, in your your industry uh, are a very, very valuable resource. And you have to pay for it, though. And I think I've got several friends that I've talked to about this. I'm not paying anybody to help me with my money. And I'm like, well, that, that's fine. But I will tell you it's one of the best investments that we've ever made. And uh, that, well, that would probably be the only other thing that I, I think we should discuss. No, thank you. That was a wonderful commercial for my industry. And I agree with you with today's complexity, taxes, estate planning-wise, investments, the fast-moving economy, the ever-changing global marketplace, to work in partnership with a financial advisor uh, that has your best interest at heart, that can help you, the client, make smart decisions consistently and avoid pitfalls is a valuable relationship. And the money that is spent in that relationship uh, will come back to you many times over. And um, so thank you for that wonderful commercial. And I really appreciate you being uh, able to take some time with me today, Gil, and, and to be so open. Uh, I actually can't wait until we catch up next time because I want to hear more about your dad and your grandfather. But I think we'll leave it there. And I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Uh, you too, Chris. And thanks a lot. Please reach out to us. Go to the website, www.elliotwealth.com. We'd love to help you out. Sign up for a complimentary consultation if you're not a client of ours already. And I always ask this. It's super important to me. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, please do so and recommend it to a friend. Thank you. I will be back with you on the next episode of the Simply Financial Podcast very soon. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of Sage Point Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss.
Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial. Simply Financial is part of the Exvadio Podcast Network. You can find Exvadio Podcasts at exvadio.com slash podcast, the Apple Podcasts app, iTunes Store, iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find podcasts. So join us and stay informed and entertained.